Let's stand together for the reading of God's word, John 8, 31 through 36. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Thus far, the word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. O Lord God Almighty, we rejoice to be assembled before you, to uh, be drawn together at your call and command and moved on in the heart by your Holy Spirit, that we should be before you with the assembly of the saints. We pray, Lord, that as you have appointed this place and this time of worship, that your word should be preached and proclaimed that you would give eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart of understanding, and that you would work in us by your word and spirit to conform our will to your will, that we may walk with Christ in the path of life. Bless the preaching now and the hearing of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's springtime, and I know some of you well enough that you're thinking about gardening, probably even started some seeds. We put the seeds out there with the hope that they will bring forth the increase. We look to gather vegetables and fruits later this summer and as we move into the fall months. Every gardener with experience knows that not every seed will produce a crop. Some of them lie on the ground, nothing comes forth. Jesus told a parable in Matthew <laughs> that Matthew records in chapter 13 often referred to as the parable of the sower, or uh, sometimes as the parable of the soils. How the sower goes forth and scatters seed upon the ground, and some of the seed falls on the hard, packed path, other on stony soil, some of the seed falls amongst the weeds, but there is that seed that falls upon good soil, soil prepared to receive it. We're told in the parable that after a little while the birds come and they quickly eat up the seed that's on the hard-packed path. The seed on the stony ground springs up quickly because the soil warms quickly because the stone right below it, but then it withers and is gone. The seed that falls amongst the, the weeds is soon choked out. And none of these three produce any fruit. But that seed that falls upon the good soil brings forth a harvest, some 30 some 60 and some 100 fold. Jesus explains that this is the way it is with the word of God. The gospel is preached. Many hear, but not all bring forth fruits of righteousness unto everlasting life. For the world, the flesh, and the devil do all they can to interfere with men and women, boys and girls, hearing the word of God, hearing the good news of Jesus' salvation. Well, Jesus has been preaching in this setting after the Feast of the Tabernacle. Some of the good seed of the gospel has fallen in places. And we're told in verse 30 that as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Many believed in him. What 
follows is Jesus engaging with this group that we've just been told many believed in him. Jesus engages with them. Uh, Jesus doesn't walk away happy. It's like, wow, look at that. You know, I've been very successful today. I've got a great crowd. They believe in me. Let's go to the next place. He engages with them. He, he even presses them hard with more truth. For Jesus is fully aware that sinful men can have fickle or temporary faith, a false faith, and it is his desire that men have true faith, saving faith. And what we see in this passage that follows is him continuing to preach good news and to apply it to the hearts of those who have heard. We have seen this before in some of the other passages where uh, we are told that people believed in Jesus they believed, though, that he was a miracle worker back, all the way back in chapter 2. They saw signs and wonders, and they believed. They believed he was someone who could do signs and wonders. We saw in another case where they believed in him, and, and they wanted him to become their king and to drive out the Romans. They saw him as a political figure. That's how they believed in him. Let us remember that Jesus knows what is in the heart of the man. As we saw back in chapter 2, I think it's verse 22. But Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Notice that? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father. So let us pay attention to Jesus' teaching here so that we are not self-deceived. Indeed, we should give close attention to what's here and as we move on, because this discourse continues as we have it through to the end of the 8th chapter. I'm going to use four main headings. Um, they're not in your worship guide because it was prepared early this week. Um, so I'll repeat them twice. The conduct of a true disciple of Jesus, the blessing Jesus gives to true disciples, the blindness and bondage of unbelief, and then finally, freedom, glorious freedom in the Son. So the conduct of a true disciple of Jesus, the blessed Jesus gives to true disciples, the blindness and bondage of unbelief, and then finally, freedom, glorious freedom. We begin with the conduct of a true disciple. Verse 30, many believed in him. Such a crowd as any crowd that exists is always a mixed multitude. Uh, whether you go to a ball game um, in England, they are rabidly uh, fanatical about their their ball games, rugby particularly. Um, you think about football games. Hey, let's think about the football stadium. In that crowd, it's a mixed multitude. There will be those there. They will have uh, the jerseys on. Any paraphernalia can buy. They'll have their face painted with the team colors. You know, they're all in. And there will be others that... They've just kind of been brought along to, with a girlfriend or, I mean, a boyfriend. Well, either way, a spouse, somebody. It's a mixed multitude. This mixed multitude that we're told that many believe, I think we want to be careful not to be quick to dismiss as we move through this eighth chapter to conclude none have believed, as in none have received a saving faith. But indeed, as we will see, as there are those who will express themselves, there are those who have had a false faith or a fickle faith. Every crowd is a mixed multitude. What follows in the rest of this chapter is going to reveal this. Of course, we're going to find that this crowd has slaves to sin. Verse 34. There are those who disregard Jesus' word. Verse 37. There are children of the devil. Verse 44. 
There are liars, verse 55. And there are those who will attempt to murder the Son of God, in verse 59. Truly a mixed multitude. Some commentators have approached this text with all kinds of arguments about the various words that John uses as they try to parse out and divide. Did they believe we're the saving faith? It was just a, an ascent, and uh, there's linguistic arguments. We're not going to take the time to go into that because it's not really necessary to get to the point. The answer is found in the very picture of a visible church. Uh, our Westminster standards speak how there's the invisible church, all the elect of God down through the ages that are always present amongst the visible church, but the visible church, as you and I have been using the term, is a mixed multitude. The scriptures also teach what we will call a remnant theology, a remnant theology. Many are called, but few are chosen. There are many on the broad way that lead to death, but only a few find the narrow gate and enter through it. Matthew 7 that I was quoting from earlier, Jesus goes on to say, Many will say to me in that day, he's talking about the last day, the great day, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Some of the most terrifying words ever to be uttered. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who would have seen those people would have assumed they were part of the church. They were believers. But Jesus, knowing what's within the heart of man, knowing his sheep, says, I never knew you. The church is a mixed multitude. And the scriptures that unfold, you find that there's but a remnant, but a few out of the great host of humanity, of the sons of, of Adam, only but a few come in. And yet that number is a great host. Because John has given a glimpse into the heavenly places. He sees uh, saints beyond number, beyond measure, more than he could count. And yet, how great is the number of all humanity? Well, Jesus isn't so interested in numbers, the numbers of disciples, but he is concerned, could we could say, about the quality of the disciples. Who are those disciples who are disciples indeed? That indeed, from the heart, with the heart, with the whole heart, follow after him. Uh, he will certainly redeem all those that the Father has given to him. Not one of them shall be lost. Those that were appointed by the Father before the foundation of the earth. For their names are written on his hands. But to ensure that all who are appointed for salvation are saved, he teaches, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you are, there's, there's a qualification, this is conditional, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Well, what's, what's the opposite of that condition? Well, if you don't abide in my word, then you're not my disciples indeed. That is what Jesus is saying here. You all know that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast. It's not what we have done. But faith is not something we can see. One of the things that... I have struggled with, I think every believer that I've known has struggled with at some point or another is assurance. How do I know I'm saved? Our Westminster standards rightly point out we can have infallible, it's very stunning to me, that we can have infallible knowledge of our assurance, that we can be certain we are saved. And what Jesus says here is a standard by which we can know. If you abide in my word, we can know. There will be evidence 
of the new life of Christ. Jesus teaches us. Paul teaches it. Peter teaches. Indeed, all the apostles who write in the New Testament in some manner or another write this. The transforming work of God the Holy Spirit results in a life changed. It's the fulfillment of the Old Testament passage that we quote often from this pulpit, from Ezekiel, that God will take out a heart of stone, that is a dead heart, a heart dead in sin, and give a heart alive unto God in salvation, a living heart, a heart of faith by grace, by the working of the Spirit. Children, I was referring earlier to gardening this time of year. Uh, The gardener goes forth and plants seeds, and then he looks to the ground to see if the, the plants spring up. He's looking to see if they have germinated and brought forth. You know, it's quite interesting as a gardener. You, you put the seed to the ground, and uh, there's not much you can do. You can prepare the so- uh, soil, pull out the weeds, make sure there's the proper moisture, and you have to wait. That seed does what it does because of the way that God made it and the condition that he supplies. The farmer is dependent upon the rain to come in the right seasons and not in the wrong season that would destroy the crop. We're dependent upon it. And when he sees the sprout break forth from the soil, then he knows that seed was living and it is bringing forth life. There would be the evidence, the fruit of it. The plant will give its own evidence as to what kind of plant it is. Just, just a couple of days ago, I went out to look where I planted peas. And I knew I'd planted peas there, so I expected to see peas there. And indeed, I looked and I knew what was growing up out of the ground were peas because I know what pea plants look like. Uh, they have their own appearance. They, they, they bear their own fruit and so forth. But, you know, I, I've gone to my compost pile sometime. Perhaps some of you have done this. And you see things start springing forth and growing. And if you're much of a gardener at all, you don't have to stand there and wait and wait and wait to see what kind of fruit grows on it. You can look at the leaves and look at the stems, and there'll be evidence as to, oh, that's a tomato. Uh, we call them volunteer plants. They come up out of the compost. And so it is. There's this evidence. There's this proof, a demonstration, and the plant can be identified. Jesus' statement in verse 31 is something like that. You want to know what's within the heart of man? You want to know what kind of person an individual is, well, he says, if you're my disciples, you will abide in my word. You will abide in my word. Um, you think about it from this direction. We don't want to be self-deceived, right? Is that not one of the, the burdens on our heart? Am I of faith? I'm, you know, I've talked with a number of you, at, and at different times, you know, you perhaps you've sinned or it's just been a difficult or dark time. You're just like, I really converted do I really have faith? And there'll be other times when we have the confidence that we do. It's just something we want to know. We want to have a sense of assurance that, in, that we're not self-deceived. Uh, we read passages throughout the New Testament of temporary faith, fleeting faith, fickle faith that is not saving faith. And if we're genuinely concerned for our souls, we want to know that we have saving faith. John has reported on this reality of the fickle faith back in chapter 2. We're told that many believed after seeing the miracles. Chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, many believed. The faith, we'll put that in quotes, we think of faith, they're believing something, was based on signs and wonders and not words. Not the word of God. They believe the reality of what they saw The faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the proof of things not seen. They were believing what they had seen. 
The faith that is saving faith is to believe in the word of God, the promises of God. Remember that when Jesus had done the, had fed the feeding of the 5,000, there were those that believed. Many believed, but then that chapter 6 goes on, and Jesus teaches. Jesus is preaching to that crowd, uh, amongst which many had believed, and what we're told is they found it to be a hard saying. And John reports, and they went back and walked with him no more. The signs, the wonders, the miracles, they, they could go believe in that. But when they heard Jesus teaching and, and his doctrine, they walked away. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You stay, you hear the word, you follow after him. Jesus makes it very clear that this is the difference between fickle faith and saving faith. This will be a theme that we'll see again when we come to chapter 15. And we'll spend quite a bit of time on that. But simply put, a true convert, a true disciple of Jesus, learns what the Master requires, and then he seeks by the grace of God to do it. And then he perseveres in it until the end. Now I'm speaking to many of you who you're converted, but your testimony would be like mine. There are times when... I don't do exactly what the Lord says. There are times when we, we falter in the way. We sin. Week by week we come and we hear the law and we confess our sins, knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Because we sin all the day long. It's not sinlessness, but it is seeking to walk in obedience. It is a desire to put away sin. It is a desire, as Jesus says in Luke, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to crucify our flesh, to deny the appetites and the hungers of our flesh. That's the distinction that he makes here. And it's a continuing in that till the end. John writes in his first letter that there are those who have gone out from the church. They went out from us because they were not of us. It's clear from what he says that at one time they were in the church. They were part of the visible church. They had been had professed faith and had been admitted to the membership of the church, probably had come to the Lord's table, but now they've walked away. And he said they went out from us because they were not of us. Those are sober words. And indeed, the manifestation is this abiding in Christ's word and continuing steadfastly in it till the end. Well, how does it begin? Well, what does he say? He says, if you abide in my word, where do we find the word of God? It's right here in these 66 books of inspired scripture. As holy men of old moved along by the Holy Spirit, recorded the very word of God. Here we have Christ, the word, the living word, inscripturated and preserved by God from the times of Moses even down to this very day. So if we're going to know the word and to be a disciple of it, we need to be reading it. We should be reading the word. We should be meditating upon it. Or perhaps as small children, we, we want to hear our parents reading the word. And parents, you, you would desire to read the word to your children that they might hear it. And as they grow in their ability to read, that you help them to read the word of God. We know the word of God by hearing it explained through the preaching of the word. That is the primary way that God works through his word. But then, as James says, we must be hearers. Endures of the word. We cannot be hearers alone. Look with me at James 1, chapter 1, and verse 22. 
Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, the deception is you just hear and hear. Jesus says, no, you're to abide. That word means to take it in, to walk in it, to live by it. And if you're only a hearer of the word, as James says, you're deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like the man who observes his face in the natural mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, there's the idea again of perseverance, continues in it, is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's pure, uh, this one's religion is useless. See, here's that doing of the word, hearing and doing, bridling the tongue. James spends quite a bit of time in the third chapter on that. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. There's this evidence, this fruitfulness, this manifestation of the work of God in the heart that you're living in a new way. You're walking out of step with the world, contrary to the world, indeed going in opposite direction of the world. You're going against the flow of the world. You're walking in the narrow path of Christ unto life. What are we seeing here? That not all who say they have faith have saving faith. Indeed, when the scripture records that there are those who believe, it is not always reporting that they are those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ unto salvation. They're believing something about him. But what is critical for each and every one of us is that we believe, and I'm going to quote again from John's statement at the end why he wrote, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that so believing we have life in his name. We need to believe who the scripture presents him to be. The God-man. God come in the flesh. God born of the virgin. A miraculous supernatural act. God the Son come in the flesh, living in obedience before God. God the Son going to a cross and suffering on that cross in his humanity for our sins. Crucified, dead, buried, raised again the third day. And ascended to the right hand of the Father. There ruling and reigning over all the vastness of creation. We need to believe what God has revealed about his son and the scriptures. And in this we have life. Genuine faith. As the way Jesus puts it. You abide, if you abide in my word. Genuine faith seeks to know Jesus teaching. And then holds tightly to it. Remember what Jesus said in the Great Commission? He's commissioned us as the church, the church as a whole. What is our ministry? We're to go as we're going about, we're supposed to be making disciples. What are we supposed to be? How do we do that? Teaching them whatsoever things I commanded you. You teach them the whole counsel of God. That they might learn to walk in it by God's grace. Just pause for some application. My dear friends, are you followers of Christ? Do you follow him as a miracle worker? Do you follow him as one who just signs and wonders? Or are you following him? You're looking to him as he is, the Son of God come in the flesh to save sinners. Are you looking to him as your only hope in life and in death? Do you rest upon him alone for salvation? Do you love the Word of God? Are you reading the Word of God? Is it your delight? 
Like the psalmist, Psalm 1. Do you meditate upon it day and night? You hide it in your heart that you might not sin against God. If you can answer yes to these, be encouraged. But if your answer is no, then I urge you to consider that your faith may be a fickle faith, a temporary faith, and not a saving faith. If a man sells you a pear tree and you plant it in your yard and the first year it bears fruit, you find fruit upon it, but it's apples, you know you've been deceived. You didn't buy a pear tree. He sold you an apple tree, presented it as a pear tree. He was false. We do not want to be deceived about what is within our hearts. You will know them by their fruits. Well, there's, secondly, the blessing that Jesus gives to his true disciples. Jesus is, as it were, winnowing the crowd with his words. Many have believed. He says, well, if you truly believe, you're going to abide in my word. Then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Here's the blessing for those who are indeed in Christ by faith. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Being a hearer and a doer of the word not only establishes the genuineness of your faith, it also is a faith that is accompanied with power. You see, when we're converted, the Spirit's worked in us. He's come into our hearts, and He remains in us. So that when we take up the Word and read it, He gives us understanding. That's why we should begin reading the Scriptures by prayer. Lord, grant Your Spirit to work in me. You have inspired these words, and You dwell within me. I'm a child of God. Open my eyes that I might see glorious things in Your Word, O God. Now, it's not just words. We shall know the truth. We will grow in an understanding of what the Word of God is teaching. We will grow in how to use it. This then is accompanied with power that we can be that doer of the Word. Indeed, the command is be doers of the Word and not hearers only. If you're trying to do that in your own strength, without Christ, without the Spirit, you're still in your flesh and fallen, you can't do it. You'll be most frustrated. But if you have the Spirit, because you are truly converted, you shall know the truth. The Word of God will become living and active and powerful in you. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that it becomes like a sword. A sword that is sharp. And he gives a physical illustration of the dividing of the bone and the marrow, which the marrow is within the center of the bone, but also, and more importantly, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of your heart. The Word of God will do that. Many of you who are hearing this will know what I'm talking about. You will have been reading the Word of God, and you'll be pricked in your conscience. The Word will come upon you, and you'll be convicted of something, and you'll confess sin. Or it will come upon you, and there will be some glorious truth, and you will be excited. You'll be joyful and rejoicing that God has revealed something to you. And you walk in that knowledge. This is the nature of what the Word does. The Holy Spirit who is given to all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ then becomes an ever-present teacher. He's with you, always. He, he is the one, he's the Spirit of Christ manifesting that what Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He abides with us, the teacher who instructs us. He's the one who moved holy men old along to write these words, and he abides with every true saint, giving us understanding of those words in the Scripture. Paul writes, it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. You see, when you're a genuine 
believer, when you have living faith, God the Spirit is at work in you that you want to do the right thing. And that's why I think all of you will know the aggravation, even the anger that you can have with yourself when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it. Or when you know the thing not to do and you do it anyway. It's because the Spirit is at work in you, both to will and to do. But you will also know something of those times when you do the right thing by the strength of Christ at work in you. You walk in obedience here and there. It's always fits and starts. But the promise of God is having the Spirit, as Paul wrote in Romans, writes in Romans 8.13, if by, you live according to the flesh, you just go your own way, live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. That's abiding in Christ. That's having the Word of in you, knowing the truth, and that truth shall make you free. Or as Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ. There is a death. Nevertheless, I live. Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of these speak of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us and the Spirit working in us. This shall make you free. Free from sin, not sinless, but sinning less. Free is certainly from the power of sin. Apart from Christ, we have no power over sin. We will succumb again and again and again. But in Christ, the power of sin is broken. When we face temptation, we have the power of God at work in us that we can stand. Take up the sword of the Spirit and prevail. Remember when Jesus was tempted. He was tempted in our flesh, in His humanity, like we are, yet without sin. And how is it that He waged war with the devil himself? He took up the Word of God. He quoted the Word of God. And he knew the Word of God so well that when Satan took the Word of God to try to deceive him and entrap him, he corrected him and he rebuked him. It's the Word of God. We shall know the Word and it will set us free. Jesus provides us a picture of what this freedom looks like. It's the life that's opposite of what you find in verse 34. 34, you hear the negative. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. So those who abide in Christ, and they know the truth, and they have the freedom that Christ gives, he's set them free, then we could say most assuredly, that when faced with sin, you don't give way to the sin. You're not a slave to sin anymore. Christ has set you free. And because you're not a slave, you're a son. That's the blessings of Christ. We need to read the scriptures looking at this. You see this negative, but the truth, the opposite is a truth also. When Jesus sets us free, what is it that he's done? He's bought us with his own blood. We have a new master. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to Satan. We have a new master. Jesus is our master. He's bought us with his precious blood. William Hendrickson captures it very well when he says, One is free, not when he can do as he wishes to do, but when he wishes to do and so can do as he should do. Do you get that? We're not set free so we can do what we want to do. The freedom that Christ gives us is so that we desire to do what Christ would have us to do, and by God's grace we're able to do that. That's the freedom that Christ gives us. For he who the Son sets free is free indeed, free to serve God. We're no longer bound in sin. 
Apart from Christ, we will serve sin. The kingdom of darkness, we will serve our flesh. We'll be contrary to God. We'll be against God. And if that's what marks out our life is that we're always in rebellion and disobedience against parents, against God. You know, we grade under the commands of the boss. So we, we see the civil magistrate's laws on the highway. We're just always against it. Just bent on sinning, disobedience and rebellion. We should have serious cause to con- con- conclude that we're not walking in saving faith. Because Jesus sets us free. He sets us free. Not just to go do what we want to do, but as Hendrickson says... We want to do what God wants us to do. We're set free to serve God. What Jesus taught that day was pretty radical because these Jews considered that they were free. They considered studying the law, just studying the law, the five books of Moses, set them free. And the Pharisees, of course, then went on to put on the show that somehow they pretended that they kept all that, which put them above the other people. But they taught that just just hearing the law would set you free. But as we heard Moments ago in our law homily, the law in the heart of a sinner, it incites us to sin. It provokes us to rebellion. That's what the law does to someone without Christ. But with the spirit within, there's a desire to obey it. Jesus, in the word of God, teaches us that the law points us to God. That's the first thing it does. We see our sin and it points us to Christ. Then if we come to him, then we are truly free in Christ because of the sacrifice he made at the cross. Precious ones, praise God, the Lord Jesus Christ, if he has set you free. Give God the glory. Persevere to study, to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not be ashamed. Bless God that he has begun a good work in you and he has promised that he will complete it as well because he's the author of our faith and he's the finisher or the perfecter, depending on the translation you have, of our faith as well. He will see it through. He will bring us to the end. What he has begun in us, he will complete. This is the blessings that that is ours in Christ. Indeed, if you abide in Christ, you have true faith in Christ, you are a disciple indeed, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But on the flip side, there's the blindness and bondage of unbelief. The blindness and bondage of unbelief. Having heard these things... This is the crowd. As they've heard Jesus teach these things, there's an attitude shift. There's this crowd that we are told that many believed in him, but Jesus is teaching, and suddenly there's, there's a shift in this crowd. Jesus has taught them that they need freedom. And they don't believe it. They think they have freedom. And they are shocked that a Jewish rabbi would even teach such a thing. Look what they say. I'm going to read it because they're angered. We are Abraham's seed and have no need. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? That's just just ridiculous to them. This would be laughable if it was not such a serious subject. Just think about this for me. These Jews are telling Jesus we've never been in bondage to anyone. What's their present reality? They're under Caesar. The, the country of Palestine, the, the nation of Israel, really is no nation. They are completely under the dominion of the Roman Empire. These are the people who were led out by God's appointment through Moses out of Egypt. What is it? The house of bondage. And they said, we, we've never been enslaved to anyone. 
The psalmist remarkably celebrates this reality of God setting them free, never mind the whole book of Exodus in other places as well. And yet they would say, no, we've never been in bondage to anyone. In the past, they have been conquered and carried into captivity by Babylon and then ruled over by the Medo-Persians. They've also been under the slavery to the Assyrians. And indeed, many of them, individually as men and women, had been slaves. Many of them might even have been slaves at that time. But as far as their religion goes, they had enjoyed a fair amount of freedom. Even at that time, in, under the Roman Empire, they were fairly free to exercise their religion, but they were not free. If you read the Gospels carefully, you'll find out there's two high priests. God, through Moses, declared how the high priest would be determined. Pilate didn't like the high priest that by birthright had it, and he said, no, I make this one a high priest. Were they free? Not at all. And yet they thought they were. Their objection to Jesus is false. But what Jesus is really talking about is not political slavery, not even social slavery. He's talking about slavery to sin. The most... I was going to say insidious, but you children may not understand. The most subtle and deceptive slave master of all is sin. Even a young child could be in slavery to sin and think they're doing their own thing. How much more so we as adults? Jesus answers them. He levels the ground. Verse 34, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. There it is. And notice he says, whoever... He, he levels it. It's not just Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. You see, the Jews, to some degree, they thought, well, we've got our religion delivered to us by God, so we're not enslaved to idols. That's another way they think they're free. But Jesus sets all of that aside. And what he's really talking about, he says, whoever commits sin as a slave to sin. And my friends, every single one of us is either a slave to sin or by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ is a slave to Christ. There's no other alternative. If you're not in Christ, if you don't have saving faith in Christ, I assure you on the confidence and the declaration of the word of God, you are a slave to sin. That's what Jesus is teaching. It is radical for these Jews to hear this. They thought they were free. But Jesus takes the argument from outside right into their hearts. If you serve sin, you're a slave to sin. That's the real bondage. My friend, whoever keeps on committing sin is a slave to sin. Whoever lives in sin, who is constantly sinning, is in bondage to sin. But whoever is overcome by Christ and his grace has been set free. Apart from Christ setting us free, we are slaves to sin. But if Christ sets us free, now we have a new master that we should walk in. The reality is what Jesus is saying is we need to acknowledge, first and foremost, the poverty of our spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Salvation begins by acknowledging, I'm a slave to sin. I'm dead in my trespasses. I serve sin and Satan. I live in the kingdom of darkness. And I'm in the world without hope or help, save in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. The Son of God can set us free, and he alone can set us free. Well, they go on to maintain that they're sons of Abraham. We are the Abraham's descendants. This is one of the great barriers they had 
to coming to Christ. As they believe that because of their birthright, we're, we're the sons of Abraham, and therefore everything is good. But the Scripture teaches the true sons of Abraham are those who, like Abraham, have believed God. Faith. They believed what God has said. And that is accounted to them as righteousness. It's not being born of Abraham. It's being born of Abraham's God. Born again by the working of the Holy Spirit. Believing what God has said will set you free. Jesus goes on to say that a slave will not remain in the house forever. Notice what he says. Verse 34. The slave does not abide in the house forever. He's in chains. He's owned. He's property. Any day the master can walk and say, come with me. Take him down to the slave market and sell him to another master. That never would happen to a son. A slave can, has no confidence that he will abide in the house forever. But a son does. You see the picture? If you're a new creature in Christ, you are in the house of God. Remember what we learned, heard in Genesis. How Hagar, the bondwoman, was driven out of the house of Abraham along with her son. Sarah and Isaac remained because... Isaac was the son of promise. Look with me at Galatians 4. Quite remarkable what Paul writes here as he takes that event in Genesis and applies it to salvation by faith in Christ alone. Galatians 4.22 For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, that's a slave, children, the bondwoman, the other by the free woman, that's his wife, Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia that corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is bondage with their children. But the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so now it is. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. You hear what Jesus said back over here? The slave does not abide forever. Cast out the bondwoman with her son. The son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Paul's talking about if we have faith in Christ, we are the true sons of Abraham. And it's not according to the place. Ishmael was a son of Abraham. But he was a son of a bondwoman. There's a picture of law keeping and confidence in the flesh rather than confidence in Christ. Abraham was not justified by works of the law. He was justified because he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. We saw that in Romans 4. James also picks it up and he makes clear that Abraham's face Faith was saving faith because he persevered in it. Twenty years after the scripture records that he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness, we're told that God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, the son of promise, whom God has promised that Abraham will have many descendants. He says, go out and sacrifice him. And Abraham goes. 
He goes up to the mountain. He binds his son. He's walking by faith. He's obeying God. 20 years later, he's persevering. He raises a knife to slay him, and God stops him and provides a lamb caught in a thicket. He says, now I, be- I know that you believe me. That was a test of Abraham's faith. It did not give to Abraham faith. He already had faith. He was already a new creature. He already had trusted in God. And he's persevered in it even to obey God to slay his only son. And of course, it's a picture of Christ and many other things. God provides the ram. We won't go into at this point. But Abraham, James' point is, we're saved by works. That's what he says. We're saved by works with the understanding that the proof of the salvation that we have by grace through faith alone. Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. You want to know if you're truly converted? Do you obey God? Do you know his word? Do you keep his word? By the grace of God, do you walk in it? These Jews, they're just confident that they're Abraham's sons. Jesus says, no, you're slaves. But I've come to set you free. I've come to make you free to be the true sons of Abraham. Sinner hears this. Sin holds you in bondage, and you will never escape its power. You cannot escape from your sin, from death and the grave, by your own ability, by your own knowledge, by your own works. It's only through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 4.6 If you would be free from the bondage of sin... That freedom comes from one and one only. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came into the world to save sinners. He lived the sinless life that we can never live. And he suffered the sacrificial death. He suffered what we deserve in our place that we might have life in him. And there's no other way. There's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally then, freedom, glorious freedom. In the Son. Verse 36 echoes the earlier verse. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Jesus has just set out a contrast between a slave and a son. The Son abides forever. The Son is free. The slave is not free. And if the Son makes you free, you're free indeed. Sons of Abraham, you're not free apart from say a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This freedom is far superior to any other. Your debt for sin is fully paid. Fully paid. Standing before a holy God and hear him say, Welcome. Welcome. Come, enter into the rest prepared for you before the foundation of the earth. Your debt is fully paid. The perfect righteousness that you lack, that God requires, is supplied in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to have your sins forgiven. You can't access heaven just because your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. You're just a, a blank slate, as it were. You must be righteous. You must be holy, for without holiness, no one should see the Lord. And our righteousness, our holiness, is from Christ alone. His holiness is placed on our account. And in Him, we enter into heaven. But notice what Jesus teaches here. If you're a slave... And someone purchases your freedom and, and emancipates you, you're free to go. That's a wonderful thing. If you're guilty, you stand before the court and you're guilty, and someone comes in and satisfies the penalty for your debt, for your deeds, deeds, again, you can go free. 
But God goes beyond that. You see what Jesus teaches here. In Christ, we are adopted into the household of God. You're not just a slave set free. You're not just a guilty sinner set free. God says, come. God brings us into his household. He brings us into his family. We are then sons of the living God. Therefore, the son makes you free. You shall be free indeed. The slave does not abide forever, but a son abides forever. Our adoption through the Lord Jesus Christ is permanent. And he gives us the spirit of adoption as a guarantee, as a deposit, it were, whereby the spirit is in us crying and teaching us to cry out, Abba, Father. God is a judge. God is holy. But in Christ, God is our Father. This is what Christ has accomplished for us. What's your response? Jesus offers so much to us in this text. I want to close with a quote from Martin Luther. Commenting on this text that we've looked at this morning, Martin Luther says, My doctrine demands more than just an initial acceptance and much praise. Those things are demanded. My doctrine demands more than just an additional acceptance and much praise. I know that it is easy to believe in the beginning. But where are those who remain steadfast, who persevere, endure, and say, Let come whatever God send me. Whether I live or I die, I will remain with Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, we rejoice that the Son sets us free. Once rebels, disobedient, and apart from you, Lord, in your Son you have brought us near, so near that now you call us children. And we have the right to call you Father. Such knowledge is too marvelous, Father. What a marvelous transaction. What a marvelous manipulation of the accounts. And we thank you, Lord, that it is true. Lord, protect us. Lord, by your Spirit, give us discernment that we should not be self-deceived. Lord, encourage us in our obedience that we would walk faithfully. Lord, if we lack it, show it to us that we lack it, that we might flee to Christ and in Him find life forevermore. All to the praise and the glory of the One whom you sent into the world to save sinners, even Jesus Christ, who laid down His life and took it up again and is reigning at your right hand. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 461. Not what my hands have done.